More Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website, www.deanbible.org, or you may write to Dean Bible Ministries at 5868 Westheimer, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. That's 5868 W E S T H E I M E R, number 461, Houston, Texas, 77057. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. All right, before we get started, we need to go to the Lord in prayer, make sure we're in fellowship, filled with the Spirit, ready to focus and concentrate on the study of the Word this evening. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your Word this evening. We thank you that... You have given us your word to inform us as to the basic condition of man, the need for salvation, and to describe for us your immeasurable grace. Father, we thank you that you have given us the Holy Spirit who indwells us and who also fills us with your word in, under the operation of his teaching ministry and sanctifying ministry in our lives. Father, we pray that as we study these things this evening that we will have the objectivity under the teaching ministry of the Holy Spirit to see how these truths apply to our own lives and that we will have the spiritual fortitude and courage to apply these things objectively in the areas where they need to be applied. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. We're in Genesis chapter 16. Genesis chapter 16, where we see the basic problem of the human solution That is no solution. In fact, when we opt for the human solution, it always ends up producing more problems under the category of unintended consequences. So whenever we start operating on our own energy, our own power, which is always the sin nature, thinking that we know better than God, that we have a better idea, then what always happens is that a number of things are generated and the process of solving that problem on our own from the sin nature that ultimately come back to create uh, problems that were not intended. Now, three weeks ago, we began this study. We just had a short class that night because they were doing some construction out on 610, so we barely had a time to get into the chapter, and we studied the doctrine of the barren woman, that it is no coincidence in Scripture that the founding matriarchs of Israel were all barren. Sarah, Rebecca, and Rachel were all barren women. There is something that God is teaching here, and that is that he brings life where there is death. Then two weeks ago, we dealt with the principle of waiting. The principle of the faith rest drill often operates on the principle of waiting. went through a number of promises in the Old Testament teaching us to wait on the Lord that the issue as part of the test is timing. 
And that's part of the test with Abram was timing. He was promised specifically by God that God would give him a descendant that would be from his own body. And rather than waiting because he was getting older and because Sarah was past the age of childbearing, Sarah decided to come up with her own solution, the human viewpoint solution, and by using the slave, her personal slave and handmaid, Hagar. What we learn from this is that man cannot assist God in solving his problems without destroying grace. Faith means an exclusive dependence upon God to solve the problems the way he says he will in his word, whether that word is a personal revelation as given to Abram and others during the process of the giving of the canon or whether it's through specific promises that we have incorporated in the canon of Scripture today. It always means we have to rely upon God's Word and its exclusive reliance. It's always faith alone, whether it's for salvation or whether it's for the spiritual life. God wants to work through us, but He wants to make it clear that God is the one who alone gets the credit for solving our problems. The essence of all legalism and religion is that man tries to help God out. We try to help him out both in terms of timing as well as methodology. All that results from that, though, is the situation becomes a lot more complicated. Now, when we look at Genesis chapter 16, there is one particular doctrine that stands out. As I've pointed out in the past, each of these circumstances that we go through from chapter to chapter focuses on some sort of test in Abram's spiritual life. That's how God's moving Abram from spiritual infancy to spiritual maturity. And so as we go through each chapter and we look at the test, we're able to see different spiritual skills that are being honed in Abram's life so that he begins to think about the problems he faces in terms of God's viewpoint and God's power and God's solution rather than his own solution. And what underlies this chapter, even though the issue is a failure to trust God, what's basic to the whole thing is a breakdown of Abram's grace orientation. It's a breakdown of his grace orientation. Now, let me remind you, when we talk about the spiritual life, and as I've taught in the past, you have five basic spiritual skills, five basic stress busters or problem-solving devices. These are spiritual techniques that God's provided for us so that we can face and handle any testing, any circumstance, any situation on his power. The first, of course, is confession. Because when we're out of fellowship, when we try to handle it on our own, the power of the sin nature, then we're out of fellowship. And the only way to recover from that is to admit or acknowledge our sins to God the Father. That's 1 John 1, 9, plus a host of other passages that all support the issue that in order to be in right relationship with God, there has to be real cleansing from sin in our life, and that takes place by simply acknowledging our sin to Him. No works involved, no remorse, no sorrow, nothing is added to confession. Confession, in its essence, is a recognition that the sin 
was paid for by Christ on the cross. So it's not a matter of trying to gain God's recognition that, oh, I'll never do it again, but it's a matter of returning back to the Lord, recognizing that what we've done is sin. It's covered by the spiritual substitutionary death of Christ on the cross. And on that basis, we have cleansing so that we're restored to fellowship. Second problem-solving device is walking by means of God the Holy Spirit. It is that command to walk by means of the Spirit that is directly addressed to our volition. It is an active concept of step-by-step dependence upon God the Holy Spirit, which, of course, is connected to His Word, but the command is to walk by means of the Spirit, and at the same time, the that is linked to the filling of the Spirit. Those are Almost, uh, those are commands that are opposite sides of the same coin. Walk by means of the Spirit is a, an active voice command. That is something that you, the individual believer, as the subject of the verb performs. You make volitional decisions to walk by the Spirit, to be dependent upon by the Spirit. When you're being filled with the Spirit or filled by means of the Spirit, the verb there is, uh, an, Passive voice verb. Now, in passive voice, you know that the individual is passive to the action, that the individual receives the action of the verb. So we're passive in the role, in in the operation of the filling of the Spirit. He fills us with something. We don't do anything other than to make sure we're in, in fellowship. We confess our sins. That's the first problem-solving device. So I think that if we're going to structure this in terms of what we do in terms of active voice volition, we walk by the Spirit, but it is it's hand in glove with being filled by means of the Spirit. Then we get to the faith rest drill. Faith rest drill, again, underlies all the other dynamics. You can't do anything else in the spiritual life if you are not trusting God, if you are, and in some way, either explicitly or implicitly, relying upon a promise, a principle, or a procedure that is laid out in the Word of God. And that's the faith rest drill. And we studied that last time under the principle of waiting on the Lord, that we are to, first of all, you take some passage, some promise, some portion of Scripture that you remember, and you focus on it, and you claim that promise. And what that means is that you recognize that promise, and you're saying, God, you made this promise, and I'm holding you to this. This is a principle the Word of God articulates, and I'm holding you to fulfill this in my life. That's what claiming a promise means. The next thing that we do is we start to think through what the rationale that's embedded in that promise. Why does Isaiah 40:31 say uh, those who wait upon the Lord will mount up with wings as eagles? Why does it say that? What's the context? Go back, read the section, think it through. The focus there is on the power of God, that He is the one that neither sleeps nor slumbers. He is the one that doesn't grow weary. So if we're waiting on Him, we will mount up with wings as eagles. We will run and not grow weary and walk and not faint because we're waiting upon Him. So you think through those rationales. And that leads you to a conclusion, and that conclusion is that God's in control of the situation. And now that you've managed to work through for about 30 minutes and reach some stability in your soul, and you've got your emotions under control, then you can relax. And five seconds later, when you take that back 
as we often do. You've got to go through that process of confessing it, going back, uh, recognizing that the Holy Spirit has revealed certain things to us and taught certain things to us, claiming the promise, and we go back through it. Sometimes we're so rattled that it's like we can't get anything else done during the day because we just go, we get on that treadmill and we just keep going until finally we just sort of either get exhausted and just quit trying on our own. But it's a, it's a process, and that's the growth process. And that's our third problem-solving device. The fourth problem-solving device is grace orientation. That's our focus tonight. See how we've moved from faith rest drill review last time to grace orientation tonight. And grace orientation precedes doctrinal orientation because the place where we learn grace is at salvation. If you don't understand grace enough to be saved, then everything else just is irrelevant. You've got to start at the cross with a, true, with a correct understanding of grace. Otherwise, you can't get anywhere because you don't have a spiritual life. So the spiritual life starts with an understanding of grace, at least in some microscopic way, as we come to an understanding of the gospel. Okay, let's go through a few points on grace orientation. First of all, grace means unmerited favor or undeserved merit. And those are two terms that we bandy about a lot, but we often don't take enough time to really think through what they mean. Unmerited and unconditional. Two key words, unmerited and undeserved, or also another, a third word we'll bring in here is unconditional. These are key concepts, and they don't mean the same thing. They're not quite Synonyms. There's certain overlap of meaning, but they're not quite the same. Grace means unmerited favor or undeserved merit. That means that grace is a gift. And it's amazing how many people just have trouble with the whole concept of gifts. They have trouble in both sides of it, the giving side and the receiving side. I've known a lot of folks who are very generous, have a very generous spirit, and they love to give. But if you try to give to them, they just break down. It's difficult for them to just have that humility. So giving can be an operation of a person's arrogance. So just because you happen to be someone you think, you know, I've got that solved, I'm a very giving person, giving can be as much an operation of arrogance as not. So giving for some people is going to be, or grace orientation for some people, is going to be uh, measured a lot more by their ability to receive than to give. Other people, it may be a, a, the, the issue that they have to focus on in their spiritual growth is the giving aspect. It's easy for them to receive, but it's not easy for them to give. So you have to keep both aspects in mind. Grace orientation involves both giving and receiving, but it's a gift, and that is the picture. So many people have trouble with just the whole concept of undeserved giving. Second point, grace, God's grace, is freely given without condition and apart from any merit in the beneficiary. That means that God gives it to you and me as sinners without any thought to some some merit in us. There's, God doesn't look at you and say, hmm, I see something meritorious in them. 
are that, you know, down the road I see something meritorious in them. And because of that, I'm going to extend my grace to them. That's the idea of being unmerited. The concept of condition is God doesn't give it and say, okay, as long as you do X, Y, and Z, then you get to keep it. See, that's the Arminian concept. Arminian, Arminianism tends to uh, teach that you can lose your salvation. Therefore, uh, salvation is given, but there's a condition attached that you avoid certain sins or that you not do certain things, and then you get to keep it. So grace is freely given without condition and apart from any merit in the beneficiary. God just does it for his own purposes based on his own character. This that means that when God is the giver, man doesn't have to fulfill any conditions or to do anything to merit that salvation. Furthermore, man doesn't have to become savable. This is a real problem. Now, this is some heavy theology, and the implications are profound. But most people have a concept that what Jesus did is he died, when he died was to make us savable. And then we have to kind of help him out by being good. Uh, but that's not what the Scripture teaches. Scripture teaches that he saves or he doesn't save. He doesn't just render you savable. Somehow, uh, you don't get that process started by Christ and finished by you. We don't help out at all. When we get involved in the process at all, it destroys grace and destroys the whole principle of faith. That's why Paul is so hard on the Galatians in Galatians 1.6 when he says, If anyone comes to you, an angel or anyone else, and gives another gospel, a gospel of a different kind, let him be accursed. And he uses the Greek word anathema. It is a strong word for cursing. This is serious. You start perverting the gospel with just a little bit of works in there, and it destroys the whole package. It's Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. You can't just say, well, I'm trusting in Christ, and then, well, I'm going to do this just to kind of uh, cover all the bases. That doesn't work. Now, there's a lot of folks who, as they get involved in church or religion or whatever along the way, initially they may have understood the gospel alone. And then they get involved in Sunday school class or some other form of instruction, and next thing you know, they're adding works to it. But they initially understood just grace alone. But we don't know that always. You can't tell. Only God knows the uh, condition of a person's soul. Third point. Third point. Grace operates through the non-meritorious operation of faith. Grace operates through the non-meritorious operation of faith. Now, what is faith? What is faith? That's a critical concept. Faith means to believe that something is true. It means to believe something is true in the uh, in classic theology you'll often find that they break faith down into three categories. And these are Latin terms, by the way, I'm not writing in tongues. Notitia a census and fiducia. If you were a Marine, you can probably figure out 
something about that third one. Notitia has to do with understanding. The first thing you have to do before you can believe something is you have to understand it, and that's true. You can't believe something you don't understand. Now, that, that, this is a tricky thing, because you can think you understand what I teach, but you don't. You know, a person really doesn't understand what somebody else is saying unless they can put it in their own words. If all you can do is regurgitate or repeat what I say or what somebody else says in their words, and you can't put it into your own words, I'm not sure that you really understand it. You may, and you just may not be a very verbal person, and that's okay. That, some people are that way, and they do understand it. They just can't figure out how to say it in their own words. Uh, but it starts with understanding. You can't believe something you don't understand because belief isn't a mystical concept. Belief is a rational exercise. It is something you do with your mind. You have to understand the terms of the proposition. See, there I go getting all academic. So you can only believe a proposition. This is just basic, uh, basic logic. Belief is always directed towards a proposition. Ultimately, it's never, it's never directed towards a person. You say, well, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, well, how do you know about Jesus? Because you have statements made about Jesus here in the Bible. That's why they call it propositional revelation. You don't know, you, you, none of us here have had any direct encounter of Jesus. Now, if you want to debate that later because of something in your past, well, we'll worry about that later and we'll call some health organization, mental health organization. But notitia means to understand. It is a rational process. The next thing is a census means to assent, which means to agree that something is true. Not to agree that something might be true or for the sake of argument, but to believe that it's actually true. Now, this is where classic Calvinism ran into serious problems and why we have this thing called uh, lordship salvation running around today and why so many people get messed up, is that fiducia means trust. But trust is actually a, a, um, a, a necessary event after you truly assent to something. Let me give you an illustration. I hate numbers. And I hate having to, uh, back before I had a computer and had Quicken, I hated balancing a checkbook. It's always an exercise in futility, and usually it took me, you know, eight, nine, ten attempts before my numbers agreed with the bank's numbers. And uh, I figured if I got within five cents, we were doing really good. But uh, if I got the same number that the bank had, I did not continue to work through the column of numbers with my calculator. I'm sure you can relate to that. Once both columns come to the same sum... What do you do? You agree that it's correct. You are assenting to the truth of your calculations, and what happens? You stop. You rest. When you agree that it's correct, you are assenting to the truth of the proposition that my numbers and the bank numbers agree, and so everything's, everything's fine. And at that point, you are trusting. So trust is inherent in the concept of assent. 
You know, today you get a lot of people who say, well, you're just make the whole gospel thing just this intellectual process that all you have to do is assent to the gospel. Yeah, you have to assent to the gospel. But see, you don't have to, to agree that some historical tr- thing is true. See, that's where people get confused. I'm not saying that all you have to do is say, yeah, the Bible says Jesus died on the cross for my sins. See, that's the wrong proposition. If you say, I believe the Bible says Christ died on the cross for my sins, that doesn't mean you're, you're saved. I can say, I believe that Darwin said that I descended from monkeys. But that doesn't mean I believe what Darwin said. It just said, I believe that he said it. See, there's a lot of people who can say, yeah, I believe that's what Christianity says. But the proposition is in the gospel that Christ died for your sins and that you need to trust Him and Him alone for your salvation. And if you agree that that is true, that I believe that Jesus died for me, that's when you have believed the saving proposition, and you're saved. You agree that it's true that Jesus died for you, and you must rely upon Him exclusively for salvation. So that's what faith means. Faith means... It is an assent which is synonymous with trusting and relying exclusively. And that's that concept when we say faith alone in Christ alone. That's the idea. It's exclusively in Christ. You're not holding out any reserve. You're not crossing your fingers behind your mental back or anything like that. You're trusting exclusively in Jesus Christ. So faith means to believe that something is true, and the something that we have to believe is true in order to be saved is that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. Now, it's not faith that saves us, because you have all kinds of faith. You had faith when you came in here and sat down in that chair, that that chair was going to hold you up and you wouldn't fall through to the floor. You had faith when you got up this morning that your car would start, and if you left by a certain time, you would get to work on time. Now, you may or may not have had misplaced faith in any of those things, but they're all exercises in faith. Faith undergirds almost everything. There, is, there are elements of trust in everything. So faith itself is not meritorious. Now, what you'll find is that there are people who come along and say, well, you know, you have to have saving faith. And they want to quiet. You have to have genuine faith. You have to have true faith. But you see, the Bible never uses those adverbs to describe faith or adjectives, depending on whether you're using it as a noun or a verb. It never qualifies. It just says faith alone in Christ alone. Now, some of you may think that this is just splitting hairs, that I'm just making a mountain out of a molehill. But you see, this is an issue today that, that is, is bedeviling almost every Christian. You're going to get involved in witnessing to somebody, or you're going to get involved in, in uh, just talking to some other believer, and you have to understand these things. because It's interesting. False teaching and false ideas turn on the minutiae. And so when you're teaching truth, you have to help people understand it in terms of the minutiae that are part of the whole, the whole uh, process. Your car doesn't just run on tires and a big engine. There's lots of l- little bitty 
components in there that have to all function together in the correct order for that engine to work and for that automobile to go forward. And so we have to understand the minutia in these things because that's the reason they coined the phrase, the devil's in the details. We have to understand the details. And that helps us in just understanding what has happened in our own salvation And it helps us when we're evangelizing others, and it helps us in clarifying the gospel when we're talking to others. So we have to understand this concept. Well, we do this, we recognize that that grace, when we talk about grace, the whole concept is best exemplified in the cross. All of this is under point number three. Grace is best exemplified in the cross because that's where we see the concept of non-meritorious non-meritorious, that it's that it's not the faith that has the merit, it's the object of faith. It's what Jesus Christ did on the cross. See, if you believe that it's Jesus Christ plus what you do, that's a totally different object of reliance than Jesus Christ alone. You've added something. You've made it something different. You've added different ingredients into the recipe. Let me tell you, if you're baking a cake and you confuse the amounts of sugar and the amounts of flour, and you, you still have the same ingredients, but you no longer have a delectable cake. It's now going to be destroyed. So you can have all the right elements, but have them in the wrong proportion, and you've got a different thing. You don't have a cake anymore, and you don't have a true gospel anymore. So we have to understand these elements. We talked about the word unconditional Talk about the word unmerited. Another element that we learn when we look at at salvation and what Jesus Christ did at the cross and what God did in providing salvation for us is that grace is generous beyond measure. Grace is generous beyond measure. It's not qualified. God doesn't give us a part of the package of salvation. He gives us everything and more than everything that we need. It's generous beyond measure. So grace, as it's exemplified in the cross, is unconditional, it's unmerited, it's generous beyond measure, and fourth, it is free to man. It is totally free to us. There's not a single thing we do to earn it or deserve it. It is free to us. But fifth, it is not free. It had to be purchased. And Jesus Christ purchased it with his substitutionary atonement on the cross. It is his spiritual substitutionary atonement that paid the price. So so grace is not free, but it is free to us. But someone has to pay. So then when we conclude this and we apply the gospel and salvation to grace orientation, that indicates a couple of things. It indicates giving, because it was the Father who gave generously, and that's one side of the equation. On the other side of the equation, it is that full reception. That's an unqualified reception of the gift. We're not going to try to earn it in the process. Now, you ever try to earn a birthday gift? See, you didn't have to do anything to have the birthday you can't do anything to earn it. Somebody gives you a birthday present, you can't do anything to earn it. 
Now, some people may try afterwards just because they have a guilt complex or something of that nature, but you can't earn it. And that's what people try to do with salvation. And what they've got when they, when they trust Christ is they say, okay, they've got some hidden trap door there where they're stuffing a little works in there that somehow I'm going to do something to earn this to measure up. And salvation means that there's, there's nothing we do. We don't sneak any works in there. Okay, grace operates through the non-meritorious operation of faith. Faith is non-meritorious. That means that there's no credit for believing. It's the object of faith that gets all the credit, which is the work of Christ on the cross. The fourth principle, grace means that God does all the work. He did everything. He didn't do 99.9% of it, and you come along and do 0.1% of it, which is faith. No, Christ did all the work. The faith, the trusting in him is non-meritorious. Grace means that God does all the work and man trusts exclusively in God's provision. Legalism comes along and this involves all human viewpoint systems of philosophy or human viewpoint systems of religion. Man does something, anything, ritual, works, Whatever it may be, God approves, and then God has to approve it, accept it, or he blesses it. Legalism says that man does something, and then God approves it, accepts it, or blesses it. And the principle that we have to remember is that when grace is violated, which is exclusive reliance in God's provision, when grace is violated, problems multiply and unintended consequences will reverberate through our lives. And that's what happens as a result of Abram's failure to be grace-oriented in chapter 16. Now, what exactly does grace orientation mean? Grace orientation means to align our thinking to God's policy and live that out in our thinking, behavior, and habits. I remember back when I was in ROTC and we used to do a lot of orienteering and then when I was directing wilderness backpacking camps and I would take groups of uh, high school kids and college kids up to Colorado and we would backpack in Womenucha Wilderness Area and other uh, wilderness areas up in Colorado and we'd teach these young men how to read a topographical map and how to use a compass, a lost art today, in light of a GPS and everything else, but you still have to le- learn these rudiments of land navigation. And the whole idea was to be, at, at the beginning, is to make sure that your, your, your map is oriented to the topography around you. If, if you have your map one way and you think you have the top of the map oriented to true north, and true north is off to your right instead of straight ahead, then you're going to be lost in a major way. Orientation means to align something to reality. And the reality in God's universe is grace. And so we have to align our thinking to grace. If you're not aligned to grace in your thinking then you're going to consistently have problems in your spiritual life in relationships to God and consequently relationships to man. So grace orientation means to align our thinking to God's policy and to live that out in our thinking, behavior, and habits. Now, I have those three things there for a purpose. First of all, it starts with thinking. 
Because if you don't change your thinking first and you just change your behavior, what do we call that? We call that legalism. It's just an overt, superficial facade. There's no real grace orientation in the soul. You're just acting like it. So it starts with thinking. That's why, as I emphasized Sunday night, we have to renovate our thinking. We have to learn to think differently. Now, what's difficult about that for Christians is that we live in a works-oriented world. We don't live in a grace-oriented world. We live in a works-oriented world. You go to a job every day, and everything there is work-oriented, or should be. And uh, uh, yet when we start dealing with people in terms of grace, it runs counter to that. So we have to change our thinking. That, in turn, changes our behavior. But it's not just behavior here and there. It needs to be consistent, and that's a habit pattern. And that's when integrity starts to be built, divine integrity starts to be built in our own soul. Six points, that's when grace orientation changes our character. That's the whole idea is to change our character so that we imitate Jesus Christ and that the character of Jesus Christ is formed in us so that God is seen through us and works through us. So grace orientation changes our character, and that's the process of spiritual growth and spiritual maturity. Seventh, grace is giving oriented. It's not just receiving oriented. It is giving oriented. It has that attitude of generosity of spirit towards others. In all manners, all kinds of details, not just financial, but in terms of just forgiveness, in terms of helping people, in terms of of, uh, every dimension of life. Eighth, grace orientation can be measured in gratitude. There's a direct correlation between your grace orientation and your gratitude toward God and toward others. If you're not a grateful person, then you don't understand grace. The more grace-oriented you become, the more grateful you become because you realize that everything you have is from God. Look, there's a lot of people in this world who are incredibly brilliant, incredibly talented, and very capable, and they don't have anything. And there are many people in this world who aren't very talented, aren't very gifted, aren't very industrious, and they have a tremendous amount. And we have to recognize that to a large degree what we have in life is, is not the product of our own work. There may be some relationship there, but ultimately it's all grace. It's all grace. I always remember uh, the story. I w- I'm not old enough to have experienced this, but uh, back in the when Dr. Chafer was alive at Dallas Seminary, and there were a, a few professors at Dallas who did this over the years. I think there was one there. Uh, when I was there, but I never experienced it. But Dr. Schaefer taught an evangelism class. And in order to emphasize grace at the end of the evangelism course, it was about a three-week course, at the end of the course, he would give a final exam, and everybody would study hard for the exam, and they would come in and take the exam. And when they turned it in, he just gave everybody an A+. And, of course, there were those who had studied very hard for the exam, and they got an A+, and deserved it. And there were others that were busy studying for other finals or they were just plain lazy. And they also got an A+. And so there were consequently some people who were a little irritated and students would get upset, but he made his point. Now you understand what grace is. I'm not giving anybody what they deserve. I'm giving it on the basis of my own desire. So it's a great way to teach grace. 
and you have to have gratitude in response. Now, what we see is point number nine is that Abram fails the grace test in Genesis 16. Because he failed to trust in the divine solution instead of the human solution. So what I'm pointing out to you is there is now this connection between the faith rest drill and grace orientation. See, he has to trust in God's provision, but God's provisions are grace provision. So we see that these different spiritual skills don't operate in isolation from each other. Ultimately, they're all interconnected in some way. They have a logical flow, but they're in the dynamic of our own life. They all get mixed in together as we grow. And as Abram fails in this chapter to demonstrate grace, what we see at the end of the chapter is that God demonstrates grace orientation towards Hagar. And just a tremendous example. Okay, let's just review the chapter briefly so we're all on sort of the same page. It's the drama that uh, is the result of Sarah's attempt to solve their childlessness by having uh, Abram have sexual intercourse with her uh, made and produce a child that way. We're going. If God can't do it, we're going to do it. We'll figure out some way. So it starts off. We have an introductory reminder in verse one that Sarah was childless, and she were introduced to the fact that she's got an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. Now remember, I talked about unintended consequences. Way back in chapter twelve, Abram decided to solve the famine problem by going to Egypt, getting out of the land, out of God's provision. While he's down there, he probably picked up Hagar as a servant. So you see a decision made in carnality some ten years earlier in his life now comes back to create further problems in carnality in his life. So you see, once we start solving those problems apart from God, it just seems to steamroll these these, um, unintended circumstances. The first scene opens in verse 2. Sarah says to Abram, Look, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to his wife, listened to the voice of Sarah. Just like Adam did in the garden, there's a specific parallel. Then we have Sarah's proposal in that second part where she says that. And Abraham acquiesces to that, listens to the voice of his wife. Verse 3. Sarai acts, then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. Now, this is the only place where you have the term wife associated with Hagar. Now, why do I make that point? Because at some point you may be interacting with with a Muslim, you may be witnessing to a Muslim, and they try to argue that Hagar was a wife to Abram, just like Sarah was, and so the real line of descent goes through Ishmael. But the text never says that uh, Hagar was his wife. She's never called his wife. She's never treated as his wife. Uh, Sarai is addressed as Abram's wife many times through uh, Genesis, but Hagar is not. The term to be his wife is a euphemism for sexual intimacy. So he went into Hagar, verse 4, and she conceived. Then we have Hagar's reaction. In 3b, when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. She was belittled. She had no respect for Sarai because Sarai couldn't produce an heir, and she could, so she became arrogant. Uh, 
and <clears throat> getting out of order here, verse 5. Uh, then Sarai reacts and says to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between me and you. Notice how she tried to solve the problem on her own, and now she's blaming God, just like Adam and Eve did back in the garden. Moses is, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is specifically showing these parallels so we get the point of how what a negative event this is in history. It is as negative, in, almost as negative an event in history as the fall. And we see that today with all of the uh, battles between the uh, Arabs and the Jews. Verse 6, So Abram said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. So now, Sarai is not going to demonstrate grace orientation. She's not going to treat her in kindness and gentleness. So we get the example uh, through the negative. And she deals harshly with her. And what does Hagar do? She solves the problem on her own. There's no authority orientation here. She flees. She just, she's now a runaway, pregnant slave. Not a good place to be in. And this is where God meets her in verse 7. God meets her in verse 7, and again we see another picture of the grace of God. First point, God always takes the initiative. Grace always takes the initiative. Grace doesn't wait for something else to take the initiative and then respond. Grace takes the initiative here. This is a pattern we see all through Genesis. God's grace took the initiative at the fall. He's the one who came to Adam and the woman after they ate of the fruit of the uh, tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It is God who takes the initiative and comes to Cain when Cain's uh, sacrifice had been rejected and he's being tempted uh, to kill his brother. It is God's grace that comes to Noah in Genesis chapter 6. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's grace always takes the initiative to provide solutions to our problems, and now it is God's grace that he comes and appears and has this little conversation with Hagar at the end of the chapter. And what we see here is a very important principle. God meets us where we are. As fallen creatures, God doesn't say, wait a minute, you've got to do X, Y, and Z, straighten this up, get rid of this in your life, uh, clean this act up, and then maybe we can do something. Maybe we can talk then. God always meets us where we are, no matter how terrible our condition may be, no matter how many times we failed, no matter how many times we've committed that same sin, no matter how far down into the, to borrow an analogy from the prodigal son, no matter how far down in the pigsty we are, God always meets us where we are. He doesn't put a condition on it and say, well, get out of the pigsty first and then I'll do something. God's grace always takes the initiative. Now, we see a a chiasm here in this last section. There's a structure here. In fact, I ran across a new word. This is a palistrophic structure. I'll write this up on the overhead for you. 
palistrophe is a figure of speech similar to a chiasm, and it means to arrange things in a concentric or symmetrical pattern in literature. See, if you don't learn anything else, at least you'll expand your vocabulary and come to understand literature. Palistrophe. And that's what we have here. There is a symmetric organization here, and again and again I point these things out because in the literary structure you find where God, the, the emphasis that where the Lord puts on things, and that's in the second speech and the third speech by the angel. So verse 7, the angel finds Hagar by the well. In verse 8, you have the first speech by the angel and Hagar's reply. In verse 9, you have the second speech by the angel. In verse 10, you have the third speech by the angel. So the uh, A line is verse 7. The B line is verse 8. The C line and the C prime line are verses 9 and 10. That's the centerpiece. It's like a frame, and that's the focal point, is on the angel's second and third speech in verses uh, 9 and 10. And this has to do with the prophecy related to related to the uh, descendants of Hagar. And then there's a fourth speech by the angel with Hagar's reply in verses 11 through 13. And then there is the naming of the well, and uh, that should be A prime in ver- uh, verse 14. The naming of the well, and that's A prime. It mirrors verse 7 where the angel finds Hagar by the well. So the centerpiece is going to be on the, on the prophecy related to the future and God's blessing of Hagar's descendants. Now, this is one of the more unusual circumstances or situations in Genesis because it involves God's grace to someone who's not in the direct line of Abram. It is directed towards this runaway slave girl. It's a tremendous picture of God's, of God's grace. Peter says that God does not want anyone to perish but everyone to come to a knowledge of the gospel. So Abram and Sarah are going to learn something about the grace of God as God deals with Hagar in grace. And this is exemplified through the angel of the Lord. The angel of the Lord. Now, there's a certain amount of debate as to who the angel of the Lord is. But the angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. Now you say, well, how do we know that? Well, I want you to pay attention to a few little things in the, in the text here. In verse 9 we read, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. So it's a recognition that, that Hagar is out of line. She's in a position of rebellion against a legitimate authority. And the angel is saying you have to be back under authority. It's a rec- authority recognition. But it's a command that comes from the angel of the Lord indicating that the angel has a certain amount of authority. Where does that authority derive? Well, we see from the, from the passage itself. In verse 10, there are promises made that only God could make. I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. See, only God can do that. So the angel is uh, ascribed actions that only God can perform. Then in verse 11, we have a prophecy about the fact that she would bear a son and that she should call his name Ishmael, uh, 
and that there are certain things said about his character and his and the future of his descendants in verse in verse 12. All of this indicates a certain authority on the part of the angel. The angel makes personal promises to Hagar that only God can fulfill and makes certain prophecies to Hagar that only God can fulfill. And then in verse 13 we see, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. Of the who? I thought this was an angel. No, verse 13 says, it's the Lord who spoke to her. So the text itself recognizes the angel of the Lord is the Lord. And if you look there in your Bibles, most of you, you have uh, uppercase L-O-R-D. And that means it is a translation of the Hebrew Yahweh, this uh, sacred tetragrammaton for the personal name of God. So it's clear that the angel of the Lord isn't an angel but is identified as the Lord. And this is also seen, or it's implied even in the, in the mandate of, verse, uh, of verses 9 and 10, where she's to return to her mistress. So what we see here in this section is that the angel of the Lord is identified as Yahweh or God. If you look at some other ex- passages, such as Genesis 22:11 through 18, or Genesis 48:15 through 16, where the angel of the Lord appears, you'll see that the angel of the Lord is also referred to as the Lord. In Genesis chapter 22, it's the episode where uh, Abram's faith is tested; and he's to sacrifice Isaac. And in verse 11, the angel of the Lord calls to him from heaven and makes certain promises to him and provision to him. And Abram then, in verse 14, called the name of the place the Lord will provide. It was the angel of the Lord that provided the substitute for Isaac. But Abram says it's the Lord who will provide. So again, the angel is identified as the Lord. And then in verse 17 of Genesis 22, the angel says, Blessing, I will bless you, and uh, I will multiply your descendants as the stars of the heaven. Well, who made that promise to Abraham earlier? It was God. So the angel takes on divine prerogatives in chapter 22. So it's clear from those passages, as well as uh, Judges 6, 11 to 24, Judges 13, 3 through 23, that in all these passages, the angel of the Lord is identified as Yahweh. But then in Zechariah, there's a distinction made. In Zechariah chapter 1, verse 12, we read, Then the angel of the Lord... Now, here we see the same personage speaking. The angel of the Lord answered and said... Now, what does the angel of the Lord say? O Lord of hosts. He's addressing another personage who is defined as the Lord of hosts, literally the Lord of the armies. So you have two people having a conversation or two personages having a conversation. One is identified as the angel of the Lord. The other is identified as the Lord of the armies. So if the Lord of the armies is Yahweh and the Lord of the, and the angel of the Lord is Yahweh, what do we have here? We have a recognition of at least two personalities in the Godhead. That the angel of the Lord is distinct from God the Father. So that tells us that the angel of the Lord has to be the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ. 
Exodus 23:20 also substantiates that same point. I, I don't have time to go through that passage now because we're almost out of time. But all these passages indicate th- that uh, the angel of the Lord is a distinct person from Yahweh. So what we have here in Genesis 16 is that the second person of the Trinity appears personally to Hagar. Now this is this is remarkable. Now think about this. Who's, who's God appeared to so far in Genesis? Well, he appeared to Adam and Esau in the garden. He appears to Cain when Cain is uh, tempted to kill his brother. He appears to Enoch and he walks with Enoch. He appears to Noah. He appears to Abram. Now he appears to a runaway slave, pregnant slave girl. She's, she's, you know, just a good old southern saying, she's walking in high cotton here. I mean, she is, she is in tremendous company. This is a remarkable event demonstrating the grace of God toward Hagar, and he's demonstrating principles of grace to her that, of course, this is all going to get back to Abram. And here Abram's been chosen of God, and the heir is going to come through him, and all this property is being given to him. And now Hagar is going to come home and say, well, the Lord appeared to me out here by the well and said that my son is also going to be blessed, and many descendants are going to come from him. This, that's going to be a humbling event for Abram. So God is teaching grace orientation to Abram. And so she calls on the name of the Lord. This is an indication of her salvation. She calls on the name of the Lord who spoke to her in verse 13 and calls him, You are the God who sees. You are the God who sees. And in the Hebrew, this is literally he who sees. You are the God who sees, for she says, Have I also here seen, have I also here seen him who sees me? And the point here is that God is the one who always sees and hears everything in relation to our lives. He's completely aware of all of our problems, every situation we're going to face, billions of years before we're ever going to face it, and He has made the perfect provision. In his grace, he is the one who sees and knows everything and has intimate knowledge of everything going in your life. So there's nothing to ever get upset about or press the panic about or button about or try to solve the problem. It is simply a matter of trusting in him. And so she marks the event and she names the well beer. That's not beer. That's not a beverage. It's the Hebrew for well. Beer Lahai Roy. And, it, and then the writer, Moses, says, observe, it's between Kadesh and Bered. These are between Kadesh Barnea and Bered. He says, you know where this is located. I just love the, how Moses puts these little things in there showing that this is historically relevant to the people at the time. This isn't some God who acts off in some mystical arena somewhere, but you know where this happened. It's right over here between Kadesh and, and uh, Bered, and you know exactly where that's located. There's a purpose for that. So then the writer concludes in verse 15, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named him son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael, and it means God hears. Now, there's one thing I skipped over here, and I want to go back and touch it briefly, and that's the prophecy related to Ishmael. In verse 11, Behold, you are with child, and you shall bear a son. 
You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has heard your affliction. And Ishmael, Ishmael, the last two letters, E-L, refer to God. Ishmael means God hears. God listens to her, her plight. And then it says, he shall be a wild man. And he, his hand shall be against every man, and every man's hand against him. That means there's going to be a certain amount of disorder among the descendants from, from Ishmael. And he shall dwell in the presence of all of his brethren. Now, what does that mean? Well, first of all, Ishmael is not the father of the Arabs. Ishmael isn't the father of the Arabs. The Arabs were fathered. Let's skip through a couple of these slides. The Arabs are fathered. I must have skipped, run right past it. The Arabs are fathered back, there it is, Genesis 10, 26 to 29. So-and-so became the father of Almadad and Shelaf and Hazmavath. Um, this is a, um, no, Genesis 10. Lit, oh, these are the sons of Joktan. Uh, Almadad, Shelaf, Hazmavath, uh, Jira, Hadoram, Uzal, uh, Dikla, Obal, Abimael, Sheba, Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All of those are the, descent, the sons of Jachan. Those are the Arabs. You trace those, those names, and many of them have identification down the Arabian Peninsula. Those are the Arabs, not Ishmael. Ishmael is the father of the Ishmaelites. And later on, when we get to Joseph, we'll see that his brothers are said to have sold Joseph to a roving band of Ishmaelites, and then two or three verses later they're called Midianites, and then a few verses later they're called Ishmaelites again. It's because the Ishmaelites were already intermarrying with the Midianites and other cousins of the Jews, the, the uh, uh, Midianites and others, so that they blend in. He, he dwells among his, the people there, he dwells in the presence of all of his brethren means that he blends in. The descendants of Ishmael can't be identified today. They've blended into all of these surrounding Middle Eastern people. And uh, the King James said, he, was, he shall be a wild man. That's that famous phrase that the old King James translated, a wild ass of a man or a wild donkey of a man. And it refers to a wild donkey that, that, traveled, that lived in the wilderness in, in uh, the southern part of Israel, known as the Onager, O-N-A-G-E-R. And it doesn't mean that he's just a wild, undisciplined person, but it indicates that he, he's not going to be confined. Uh, there is going to be a cert- certain lack of, of uh, external constraints upon him, just as there are upon any wild donkey. It doesn't mean that he is a wild ass. I think too often in English idiom it comes to mean something a little bit different. But it's comparing him to the onager who was wild and uh, untamed, and this would characterize the descendants of Ishmael, which is, of course, true for many of the Arab and Bedouin tribes. So God had a purpose, and in that purpose, he says that he would multiply uh, the descendants of Hagar exceedingly, and this sets up the stage for much of the conflict down through the ages between various groups of Arabs and the Jews. But remember... Ishmael, Ishmael's mother is what? She's Egyptian. Ishmael is going to marry an Egyptian. 
So the descendants of Ishmael are going to be about half Egyptian. We'll come back next time. We'll get into the 17th chapter, which is where circumcision is introduced as the sign of the Abrahamic covenant. And this is the third significant statement on the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis. The writer clearly wants us to understand the importance of the Genesis, I mean, of the Abrahamic covenant. Let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word, to learn about grace orientation. And, Father, we pray that God the Holy Spirit would make it clear to us that we may exemplify your grace in our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.